All right, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show, we have John and Tony Baumgartner from Speed the Plow, or you might know them from The Tripes, which is what we're here to talk about today. The Tripes have a 40th anniversary collection called Music for Neighbors, and Music for Neighbors has all the Tripes studio recordings along with home recordings, live recordings, and it's got their 1984 showcase at the bottom line in New York, as well as two songs that were recorded by the Tripes during 2017 at an anniversary gig. Um, yeah, so you guys probably have noticed a lot of this podcast is documenting Cleveland history, but we've been diving a lot in Hoboken, and uh, this is a prime example of it right here. Um, John and Tony were super sweet. We get into it. Um, and yeah, it's it's there's something magic about a music scene that dissipates, but then comes back or or stays reminiscent in the area, even if it's not there and not active. There's 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 a taste that lingers, and I think dives into generations later in different ways, and they find their own place. So it's important to dive into these bands. So we're gonna listen to a track. This is Plan A.
Plan A, Music for Neighbors, The Tripes, catchy, right? Different, but it's got that it's got that velvet underground. It's got that cool instrumentation and like I don't know, really cool stuff. Um, so it's out now on all the streaming platforms. Um, before we get to our conversation, if you can like, rate, review, subscribe to one of the podcast uh, platforms, it helps me keep talking to cool guests and sharing their insights with you. It's a little thing that goes a long way. Um, yeah, so thank you guys so much for tuning in. Here's my conversation with John and Tony. Cool, awesome. So, um, cool. Well, with that, let's jump into it. Um, is cream of turkey soup really the best? Is cream of turkey soup really the best? Uh, it, it depends on where you get it. it depends on your stock. Yeah, but if you make it at home, if you're referring to the, uh, where was that place? The Golden Steer? We used to go get turkey soup. Hawthorne, New Jersey. Um, is, is this just a left field question or were you no, aware that? No, that was, I was, I uh, was, I have the golden, I forgot the right steer down in my notes. So I, that's why I, at first I was going to ask what's the best thing from the Golden Steer, but. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so we're doing a deep dive, Dave. That's that's great. Um, yes, was a place we used to go after marathon tripes rehearsals. And when I say marathon, I'm talking, you know, six to eight hours. That... Or in, a, in other quantity, um, maybe two cases of beer. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, the cream of turkey soup at the Golden Steer was like... Just what we craved at the end of all this. <laughs> That's awesome. Can we let's set the scene a little bit in in Hoboken? So, um, from what I understand, the tripes it's like a it's kind of, it was a project you guys were working on before, and then um, right. members of the Feelies joined, and it kind of took off in a different way. But um, Hoboken was a magic scene. Like I've talked to quite a few people um, from it. Glenn Glenn Morrow being one. And um, Chris Butler being another, like there was this like this little magic like bubble of creativity. So can you set the scene from being in it? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, our our scene began in Halden, which is a kind of a working class suburb of Patterson, about half hour from Hoboken. Uh, Glenn and Bill, of course, you know, with the feelies. I mean, they cut their teeth at CB's and Max's and those places quite a bit earlier on, I guess mid to late 70s already, um, which is a little before the Hoboken scene was really developing. Um, but after they went on hiatus, we started doing music in Halden. Yeah, I mean, the band was formed by uh, myself and Tony and uh, Mark Francie, our guitar player, and um, a high school friend, El Bruce Kelamet. Uh, on vocals. And, um, yeah, yeah, I think Glenn was particularly was very eager to not just step away from the Feely's situation. Um, uh, you know, they weren't thrilled with the biz by any means, uh, you know, or dealing with labels. Um, so they wanted to step away. And I, I, I guess in, you know, getting involved in the tripes, Glenn stepped away not only from, you know, the feelies and their sound, but from playing guitar. Um, you know, he was uh, uh, almost exclusively a percussionist. 
with us when he first started with the tribes <clears throat> and um and maybe playing some odd violin or dulcimer parts, but primarily percussion. Um, so started our early songwriting and uh, pretty primitive stuff. Um, you know, I was sort of, Glenn and Bill had turned me on to, um, you know, Philip Glass, Steve Reich, Eno, um, and and also happening in the background were things like you know, Gang of Four and Bush Tetras, you know, two or three chord bands. And, you know, it's the traditional, you know, it's what went back to the Velvets. You know, nobody bought their album, but they started a million bands because everybody's like, yeah, two chords, I could do that. So... jump in for a second? Yeah, sure. Sorry. Um, so you, you were wondering about how we were involved, like, early in the Hoboken scene. I have to say that personally and and we knew about the Hoboken scene but we didn't really live the Hoboken scene we were doing all of this in Halden in our basically own backyard in our living room and the hope to me personally the Hoboken scene didn't really in, infiltrate our sound until much later when we were going to Hoboken and playing and Glenn was involved and all the other feelings were involved I think it was for us it was more of a a personal Halden sound yeah, although, I mean, I guess after about a year, I guess when we expanded the band and and Brenda joined, Glenn started playing guitar, Stanley joined on drums. Um, for well over a year, we were rehearsing at Maxwell's, uh, what was it, Monday Night's Tone or Sunday Night's? Sunday Night's. I played the brunch in the front room or the back room with my Renaissance trio, and then in... I'd wait for you guys to come down, and after dinner, we'd have the back room to rehearse in. It's funny. We never asked Fallon to, to, to make some turkey soup for us. <laughs> we should have done that. Um, but, yeah, we rehearsed down there, like, weekly. Uh, you know, again, pretty, you know, four or five-hour things on Sunday nights. Uh, and we and around that time, uh, with the expanded band and... Of course, I started writing with more than just two chords. Uh, yes, and then writing with a lot more chords after we got, you know, some really serious players in the band. And, you know, obviously, I mean, you play, like, long enough and have these long rehearsals. Everybody got better, um, even us amateurs. So, uh, and that's when we started, like, gigging, uh, I guess, initially at Maxwell's. Although, we did run this series, um, a music series one summer at this bar in Halden called the Peanut Gallery. And uh, I mean, we had a phenomenal lineup of people like once a week. I mean, we sort of traded the owner of the bar um, time for us to rehearse on afternoons, and then we'd provide him with a show so he could make some money at the bar in the evenings. Let me just say the time frame for the peanut gallery was like 82, 83, and the Maxwell's rehearsals was more like 84, 85. Right, okay. right. But I'm just mentioning this, Dave, because, you know, we had members of the Bongos in various figurations. There was a band called Dr. Roberts that had members of the Tripes and the Bongos and the Feelies doing all Beatles songs one night. Um 
things like that. Um, or the earliest version of Winter Hours played a show. I think they were called Ward 8 at the time. And wrapping up the series was to have been the debut performance by Yolo Tango, because uh, we were pretty good friends with Ira. He, yeah. at the time, was running sound. Uh, he was the sound man of all things at Maxwell's. Uh, so we got to know them pretty well, and they were just starting this musical endeavor, which they were calling Georgia and Those Guys. So <clears throat> they were booked for the very last week of the series, but alas, uh, did not uh, did not get their shit together, let's say. So, uh, you know, they, they made their debut a little bit later, but that that would have been a nice round out to the thing. And the series got buzz. I mean, you know, that was part of the early connection between Hoboken and Halden because after people started hearing about who was playing at these shows and the kind of, you know, configurations, and we'd show, you know, we have a friend who was into cinematography who was showing like Warhol shorts in between bands. So it was, we're getting a lot of people from Hoboken. In fact, Steve... Fallon from Maxwell's came up a couple of times. I think the second time for the Tripe show, he brought Michael Stipe, who uh, was just about to do a tour of uh, England with REM, one of their early tours. And after the show, um, he was interviewed in NME over in Britain and asked about, you know, the music scene in America, and I don't know, I guess maybe it was the last thing he saw was us, so, you know, he gave us some real, really nice, nice. compliment, British press. So, and, you know, obviously with the connection with Bill and Glenn, uh, you know, certainly opened doors. Now, who from the bongos was sitting in? Uh, Richard and Rob. Okay. Their, their bass player. And, you know, Richard Barone, and, who, um, who still occasionally plays with Glenn. They do little two-man shows here and there. Um, with Glenn Morrow? Uh, no, Glenn Mercer. Glenn Mercer, got it. Because Glenn Morrow, he did something with the... He was with the bongos for a little bit or was on, the, like, the sideline of it, right? Uh, he was in the band called, called A. Oh, that's was right. Which kind of a precursor to... The bongos. Individual. And then the individuals, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, yes, I mean, one thing you may glean that it was kind of a musically incredibly incestuous relationship among a lot of these bands. I mean, really out of Halden. Um, we played some shows, did shows at like Folk City during a music series that Ira was running. We had the Tripes, um, the Willies, which was um, sort of a more instrumental uh, and or more instrumental and experimental sort of side of the Feelies, uh, and then Young Wu, which was <clears throat> fronted by Dave Weckerman. Uh, so we play these shows, and it was the same people in every band. Uh, so we would just kind of shuffle our positions after once we'd tripe set, everybody would move around to some different instrument and we'd uh, put Dave in front, fronting the band and it would be a young woo set. And similarly with the willies, everybody kind of sat in with them. So it was, uh, it was amusing to us. 
um, aggravating to some people in the crowd who were like after the show. This was just all the same people (laughs) (laughs) kind of shuffling around. And, you know, my response has always been, you know, but it's completely different music. You know, people are capable of doing that, you know. (laughs) So, uh, you know, anyway. I was going to say that's a beautiful thing because it's hard. One, just as a band, it's hard to find two other people that are like, I'll show up every week and go play that venue to nobody for a long time until something neat happens. You know, it's hard to get like people to be committed towards expressing themselves in a way. So it's it's beautiful in a way that you guys found this this community of everyone backing up each other and letting and letting each other kind of like shine. Yeah, I mean, that's what it was. Um, you know, Dave had been writing music was in a bunch of other bands aside from the Feelies. And I mean, he had a he had an album's worth of material, you know, be throwing a couple of covers and the sound of Young Woo was just completely different than what the Tripes were doing and certainly very, very different from what the Willies were doing. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we said, let's do an album. <laughs> and I, I feel like, the, sorry. Fun for all yeah, Tony, say something. I said it, was, it made it so much more fun for all of us. Yeah, yes. Right. It, it did for me. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... Dave's album was re- recently re-released. Uh, it's called Shorely's. Uh and Glenn Morrow put it out, I think. Okay, cool. Yeah, you have to check that out. Um, but yeah, it, it's like I don't know. I feel like that that comes from someone who's not really paying attention to the stage in a way, like or wants stage time. That's that's who says that. Like oh, I wanted to play. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. But um, that I, I, it's it's really it's. One, it's cool because you get to share all these different sides of people, but also learn how to support that. And like, what's interesting about uh, your guys' sound is it's it's uh, it, like how you're saying this two chord velvety. That's kind of where I was like, when my initial listen through without reading anything about you guys, that's initially what I kind of got from it. But like, on the on the listen back and after reading, it was like, it, you you guys bring each other out, bring like I don't quite every song's different right and like every song has a different soundscape and like i think that only comes from i feel like being in an environment like that where you're adapting to each each new thing that's brought up and which makes music interesting yeah totally totally and and i think because our beginnings were as i said pretty primitive i mean i came to the game pretty late considering i mean i had studied accordion like every good hungarian son did for quite a few years when i was young so i knew my way around the keyboard but i mean there were years i you know i didn't play music uh until i guess the original the, the, the original formation of the tribes the single goal we had at, the, at that time was to come up with a song or two, actually, because we needed a flip side, that would be good enough to get it to make a 45 and to get it on the jukebox of this local bar that we frequented. That was the goal. <laughs> it was was it the Peanut Gallery? Are we talking about that bar or a different bar? 
Uh, no, what was it made? The Halden House Town? Or? It was called The Come On In. The Come On In, yeah. <laughs> Very uh, welcome. We hung there, kind of put the idea for the band together there, and resolved, you know, that's our goal. We're going to get a single on this jukebox, and then Cola quits. And then, you know, Glenn got into the idea quite a bit, and, I mean, one thing led to another, and uh, propelled us forward, and, you know gave us a little bit some more lofty goals let's say well i mean it take well he just came off of like doing that right so he kind of had that like oh this is possible this this is what we need to do type um type steps to make that happen right yes yes yeah 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 i mean mark had played in a band um in high school so he was you know kind of familiar with that more they were called box lunch B-A-C-H, apostrophe oh, that's cool. S. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So he had a little bit of experience, but the rest of us didn't. And really around that time, I mean, I was oh, around 30, I guess, when that started, which is obviously like way late, um, uh, way, way later than most people. Uh, you know, I mean, Glenn Morrow was playing in, you know, pickup bands at CB's when he was like 17, 18 years old. Uh, yeah, so we came to it much later, and, and I mean, certainly life experience at that point. You know, I was working as a journalist, uh, as an editor of a paper. Um, you know, it. it uh, I think when you start when you're 17, 18 years old, you know, the goal obviously it would have been for me is let's get in the friggin' van and and go tour tour the country. Um, but we we couldn't do that. <laughs> So uh, most of our playing was on the East Coast. I mean, the further south we got was, uh, well, it was Mountain Stage, but that was with Speed the Plow. Now, we were mostly New York area. I guess the furthest afield we got was the Rat in Boston. But, you know, that um, there's so much within that area. It's a dense area. Oh, yeah. If you're going to be active in any area, it's like, like compared to like somewhere like Texas, where, where do you go? Uh Further away, oh, no. In Texas. <laughs> I mean, kidding me? The, uh, the mid '80s in New York. Uh, yeah, we were playing Folk City, CB's, Maxwell's, of course, the Peppermint Lounge, Danceteria, uh, Knitting Fact. I mean, you know, there were quite a few more venues than there are now, and opportunities that you know existed because of our relationship with people from the Feelies. You know, as I said, opened some of those doors. So, uh, yeah, yeah, there was no lack of venues. Nice. Well, like, so it's interesting. So you guys were just kind of being creative and writing songs and figuring it out, and, like trying to find ways to express yourself and rearranging these groups. And then when Glenn and Bill sit in and, like, get real into it. Now, did did Glenn start as a sound guy? Did I read that right? Before he was doing uh, percussion? Bill. Bill, Bill. Bill okay. started as our sound guy. Extra percussion. And that, well, you know, that's the interesting thing. The extra percussion he did was we had a mic at the soundboard, which is typically not anywhere yeah. near the stage. <laughs> uh, we had a mic set up there, and, you know, in uh, half a dozen songs, he had a whole phalanx of percussion, you know, wood blocks, timbali, you know, I mean, all kinds of stuff. 
which was always great to see people freaking out when they're like, where the frig is this other sound coming from? And, you know, turn around and see it's the guy at the board who's playing along. That's and that, that that's so, like, I was gonna say, sorry, I was gonna say that's like a next level to be in a group like that where like there's more being added to what you guys bring to it and sometimes you don't know it. Like there it takes a certain amount of like being able to trust the people you kind of bring into it and being confident in, in what happens. And that's a that's a skill set I think that's a you know, that takes a while to develop the confidence to just be like, This is what it is, and now we have wood blocks and like and they're cool. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. It goes down to, it goes, that, you know, brings us back to our ultimate, like, we were like neighborhood kids together. You know, we knew yeah. each other in high school. We hung out at the skating pond. You know, like, we knew each other's siblings. We did, we do have a very strong, like, family connection with everybody. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, the ability later to kind of become a bunch more adventurous was I think because we started at this really kind of naive level. I mean, kind of thought of ourselves in the beginning as some version, like a version of Vino's Portmouth Symphonia, uh, you know, just all amateur players <laughs> getting together. Uh, so we did a lot of, we took, you know, risks. I mean, nobody was embarrassed to try something freaky on a song because you know, we were just having a good time. And uh, I think that helped. I mean, it's, it's a it's a really comfortable position. I mean, I, I became kind of the primary songwriter of the band, uh, and it became you know a, a, a much more comfortable position than ordinarily in terms of introducing new music to people, which can be you know intimidating, uh, or at least has been for me. Yeah. We would elaborate on lots of long jams and like jams that go off into, you know, the stratosphere. Who knows where it's going to end up? But it just was that was that was just so much fun about it. We were just jamming, and you know, I'd pick up a different instrument. We change the tempo, change the feel, pick up another instrument, sing a little bit. Everybody like all bets were off. We were just like. Throwing up, throwing everything at the wall and would see what, what felt good and what would stick. <laughs> and, and if I can just interject one thing, not to, well, I, you know, aside from Bill and Glenn getting involved, um, Tony's presence in the band uh, brought uh, no, I mean, a much higher level of musicianship. I mean, it's just classically trained woodwind player who. Mm. <laughs> you know, can sight read like crazy and, you know, just these skills that none of the rest of us had and not only musical skills, but, you know, brought in a different kind of instrumentation to the band than, than anyone else was using at the time. Right. No, that's true. <laughs> and I was going to, I was going to ask about that. Um, so Tony, what, what, what was, was Woodwind your, your primary? Was that like, or were you, cause um, like, Flute is my major instrument. I have a bachelor's of performance from the University of Bridgeport in Connecticut. Okay. So flute. But I really never did any improvising or anything, like, out of my mindset while I was in school, and it really wasn't until I was in the tribes and playing with these people that I actually played stuff that wasn't written down. And um, it was 
a whole new world of just being free with your playing. And you, so what? You play the same pitch for, you know, 48 beats. It doesn't matter. You know, it was just kind of all about the feel and the flow. Right. And it's interesting, so, like, because I, I go also going through a, a music, uh, academic approach to music, it's like in a weird way you learn exactly how to read how someone feels and how to express it. But you never really learn how to feel in a way. Like, there's no classes that really, like, kind of, like, I mean, at least in my experience, let me clarify. At least with my experience, they don't really teach, like, you learn improvising techniques and scales and, like, approach. But there's not many opportunities where you can learn how to feel and express that within in an academic approach, like, musically. Mm-hmm. I really think that that is really one of the strongest um, the strongest things about playing in a band. Right. Um, that don't, they don't really take it that seriously, but in fact, it's one of the higher level thinking and higher level playing that most musicians do if they're, you know, if they're good at it. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And like, but that, and it's beautiful too, because like coming in with some chops, you're learning how to like feel and let loose, and they're learning how to tighten up and figure out like some scale, you know, like. It's a beautiful yeah, learning we, ground. We were, we were both going in opposite directions to the same ultimate, you know, end point. Right. Tony kind of loosening up and maybe dumbing down our game a little bit, playing a little bit more repetitively, perhaps, than she was kind of accustomed to. And, uh, you know, us trying, I always felt like I had to get better. Um, and uh, I still haven't gotten my left hand in shape, but... Uh, that's the accordion player's left hand. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where all the buttons are, yeah? All right, did I switch it? Yeah, I'm fine with 120 buttons, but, you know, left hand on a keyboard, foo. Gotcha. <laughs> okay, so you had a button box. Okay. Was uh, it... Well, the left, the left, the bass keys are, are buttons on, on all right. accordions. All but a few rare, weird ones, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, and I had a keyboard on the right hand. Thank oh, okay, God, okay. Yeah. Huh. So I and I played for about seven years when I was young. So I was just ha- happy that I had gotten right. to the point. I really didn't like the instrument all that much, the accordion that is. Um, but I'd gotten to the point where I could read music pretty well, and you know, that kind of stuck with me. It's like you know, so coming to this was sort of like you know, getting back on a bike, in a way. Yeah, that the left hand on the accordion, the or at least the bass side, is pretty. That's pretty tricky. You got the you got the counter bass on top, like the third or whatever, and then you got all the chord progression going down it, and like yeah, there's so many bits minors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, there's 120 of them, and there's only one marked. So yeah, they're like, here's your C. You're like cool, <laughs> and it moves in the circle of fifths. Neat. I can remember that. <laughs> but it's a, it is a cool sound, you know. It is a cool sound, but. Um, well, you know, it's funny. It's turned out. I mean, like I said, I you know didn't feel like I'm sure I would have liked to play like actual piano or guitar when I was young. But uh, I've done so many accordion sessions over yeah. the years with different players, different groups, and different projects. Uh, you know, like, and of course, you know, my friends are always eager to bust my balls about accordion sounds, you know, any meme that's out there about accordions and banjos and bagpipes is sent my way. 
And, you know, I have to remind everybody, they're like, you know, you asked me to play on your, on your last album. <laughs> you know, if you got such a low opinion of accordion, what'd you bother me for? You know? <laughs> well, you play pipes too? Uh, no, no, no. Okay, okay. I'm just saying that's the gotcha. trifecta of horrible oh, instruments. Yeah, okay. <laughs> of things that, uh, instruments that upset people. Right, right. They're like, oh, there's, there's, okay, yeah, yeah. I get it, okay. I was going to say, whoa, yeah. that's, that's an A and B twist. Like, that's just like a drone. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, my, but, um, so, okay. So you're coming in with that. And then like the kind of step back, like when, when Glenn and Bill are added, like they're kind of adding this professional kind of like, let's, let's aim to get into a studio. Like what were some kind of like initial lessons from when, when all was said and done and they're playing in the band, like that you guys learned from working with them? Oh, I mean, just learning to work in a studio and what to listen for. Um, you know, in the in the mid '80s, as I'm sure you well know, um, the big drum sound uh, just became ubiquitous on every recording, uh, and they were coming from a completely different place than that. Um, in fact, I mean, there was sort of an unstated rule in the beginning as we're developing songs and then recording them, no cymbals. No cymbals and no big sounds, yeah. Yeah. Um, In fact, our very first recording session before, I guess, um, we were, we, before we knew really anybody, we recorded at a place called Homegrown Studios. I think it was in Boonton or something. And we went there. On the way there, well, Glenn was playing the um, drum. He had the floor tom. On the way there, his floor his floor tom head got sliced somehow is broken, and he he had no drum to play, and he was so upset. I will never forget. He's like, "Well, you know, I have one instrument, and now it's broken." But <laughs> the engineer at this place he didn't know what to make of us. He was drinking coke, and I guess smoking cigarette. We we recorded through the night because we just weren't getting what we wanted. And I, I don't know whatever he thought of us, but it was a crazy recording session. That was my first uh, <laughs> my first uh, session with those guys. It was it was pretty wacky, really wacky. Well, yeah, yeah. Glenn and Bill, I mean, they had very specific ideas. And, uh, I mean, at times then, uh, you know, occasionally there'd be clashes with a sound man in a club or with in the case of this engineer at this first studio we went to where you know they're kind of basically rubbing somebody the wrong way with their approach who you're although you know you're still looking for that person to cooperate with you and help you make your sound good So, you know, it could be demanding, but I mean, after a while, I, you know, I really saw the wisdom of, of what they were trying to impart. Um, so you, you don't drag the piano in front of the stage anymore? Uh, that only happened maybe two shows, and it was just, uh, I mean, this crappy old upright that, I don't know why Fallon still had it in the back room at Maxwell's, but did and uh by that point it was all it was was logistics it was uh, availability it was there it wasn't tuned real well but by that point there were seven of us in the band 
Uh, Bill had started joining us on stage, you know, probably Ira was doing sound. And I said, well, let's try to be upright up in, in front of the stage. And it was like, a, you know, it's one of those two, two and a half foot, three foot elevation stages. Yeah. And Maxwell's, and so I was sitting noticeably down and off to the side, but I said, you know, not only can I play acoustic piano, which I kind of wrote most of the songs on, um, but I'll save you guys some space on stage. So it it was pretty interesting. I mean, people like leaning on the keyboard, like I was some guy playing in a piano bar and then there was a band on stage. (laughs) it was a trip. It was fun. It's it's interesting with with that with that perspective with uh, with a lot of like kind of getting experimental with sounds is like the rooms they're so like a lot of times it, most of the times it's, it's set up to be this way and the sound guys he's he's been here all night he doesn't want to deal with anything you know he's got to be here the two and the move around mics and stuff and like it squeals and the whole audience is like until you get set up right and that's coming from like I've. They run sound at a couple spots, and like, um, and or I should say, have run sound, and like, it, it, I can see on that end. But like, it's like once it the 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 uh, the artwork becomes clear once the song is heard, like, it becomes a different experience. So with, through kind of sticking with your guns and like getting the sound you want, working with these engineers and sound guys, did they get hip to it as well? Uh, I mean, some sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes uh, a sound guy would look at like a seven-piece unit with. I mean, we even played some gigs with accordion early on because I, I was working up one or two songs that became Speed the Plow songs. So, but looking at you know accordion, this bizarre array of not really a drum kit and percussion. Although Stan did have a full kit by that point, and uh, then flutes and clarinets and saxophones, um, you know, yeah. occasional dulcimer. I, I mean, some sound guys would just look at us loading in, and you could see in the look of their face, <laughs> this was going to be a rough night, you know. <laughs> and then usually with the younger guys who were just coming up, maybe you know, coming out of music school or something would approach it like, ah, oh, right, you know, not just two guitars, bass, and drums. Right. You know, I actually have some work to do tonight. And uh, so, yeah, it kind of ran the gamut. Interesting. Like, so what, uh, after, what led to the, the Twig and the Kicks gig at Maxwell's? Is it, was that before you guys were rehearsing there? Or did that uh, happen yeah. after? Was it before, Toad? Before. Yeah, before? Oh yeah, because it was with the early tribes. Well, yeah, yeah, it was the very first show we we did uh, outside of Halden. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, and uh, I didn't, you know, I, Glenn and Bill knew Steve from back in the day. I mean, you know, the Feelies did some uh, shows before they disbanded at, at Maxwell, so they knew knew each other quite well. Yes, uh, we also had a little demo. We're we're uh, you know throwing around a little demo we made. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? What was the question? Um, <laughs> What's my place? How did we get twig and its kick? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know yeah, it's I kind mean, of bouncing Steve, back, but yeah, Steve Fallon, who ran Maxwell's and ran Coyote Records, our our first label, 
and label, you know, Yo Tango's first label, uh, first label to many, many people. Um, he, um, he started, yeah, listening to our demo. I guess we were talking about starting some recording. To, it was one of the early Coyote releases, maybe the fourth or fifth. Um, and, you know, just gave us an extraordinary opportunity. Um, I mean, if you talk to anybody from the Hoboken scene, you know, Steve Fallon is, is a god. <laughs> and uh, much missed around here, although he was thriving down in Rehoboth Beach. But, um, yeah, he, he gave everybody, I mean, lots of people opportunities. Um, uh, yeah. So that's there's important. my answer. Yeah, yeah, no, that's important. Like, because a lot of times opportunities are like kind of held and and hidden, and like a lot of people don't get them because people are afraid of other people succeeding. But like, when you have it in a group where it's like friends like supporting each other, just like how you guys did as a unit, and like the see that that expanded into a scene as well is like what I think it make from the stories I've heard about the Hoboken scene and like the people I've talked with. I think that's part of the magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, and it, it was particularly how he treated bands. Uh, you know, he fed everybody. He, you know, he gave them beer tickets left and right. He treated them, treated bands really well. And, you know, his relative proximity to Manhattan turned out to be unbelievably ideal um, in terms of national and international touring bands. You know, you could do a, a couple of gigs in Manhattan, but they'll also schedule something across the river in Hoboken, which is how we wound up, you know, booking New Order and Who's Who Do and replacements and, you know, national bands that were, you know, really achieving some recognition. They, they wanted to go there because they treated them so well. I mean, in fact, I mean, he just, he's remained friends with Bob Mole, for instance, for 40 years. Right. Well, when you, when any, any band that when you're first trying to reach out, you know, those are, those connections are so crucial. And like, because it's so hard to play somewhere you've never been and expect people to listen. It's hard enough when you do live there to expect people to listen, you know, like passing out yeah. that demo is the hardest thing. Here it's two minutes. Yeah, cool. I'll, I'll listen to it. Hey, did you listen to it? No. Nope. Uh, I, I'll get to it, bud. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's why it was so different for a guy. He, you know, he really. I mean, having us rehearse at his club, and he really felt like committed to the band, like he was bringing us along. So that's a pretty rare relationship. Yeah, and was that like? I imagine that's like when no one's there. Like as far as like just even having access to the room. You know what I mean? Like there's something special about that too. Like when you go to set up for a gig and it's in a place where like everything's happening or something's happening. Like, it, I don't know, there's there's a certain magic, like, oh, we're playing here. You know, like, even when it's just for the one night. So to have access to rehearse there, that's 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 yeah. super cool. Oh, I mean, it totally was. And I mean, talk about, I, like I said, he knew Glenn and Bill for a few years at that point, but didn't know the rest of us from Adam. And it's just like, here, I'm handing you the keys to my establishment on a Sunday night when it's closed and you got the run of the place. And of course, you know, there's a full bar there, but hey, I'll trust everybody to be fine, you know? Yeah. And we were, and we were respectful of that. And, you know, kind of, 
I've thought a few times in the early Sundays we went down, like, really, this guy's given us the keys to his place? Uh, you know. Yeah. Um, on, on a completely spin-off kind of question, do you guys ever do anything with Perubu? Uh, Speed the Speed the Plow, which okay. was the band that kind of evolved out of the tribes. We played our very first gig at Maxwell's uh, opening for David Thomas. Okay, very cool. How'd so that, that go? That's kind of the only connection. Oh well, other than the fact that the Feely's early drummer Anton Fear um, played, I think, with Perubu for I think one album. Not sure, but um, yeah. So that's but our only connection is opening for David Thomas, who we were warned for weeks is this irascible, really curmudgeonly dude, and I found him to be the nicest guy around. <laughs> so can never believe what you hear. Right, right. Yeah, I, I did a. I talked with him a, like a, probably a year ago now, and um, and he can be. There was moments <laughs> where it was getting a little rough, but like. Um, but then it, it'd steer. I think he's got a particular way of talking, and it's quite quite upfront. And I think sometimes that can be a a lot for people. Uh, so um, let's like the tribe's last gig was at CBGB's, right? Yes, indeed. Okay, and was that? Did you guys know it was the last gig? No. Okay. Um, I knew. I knew it was the last gig. I knew what the stage that night. It was going to be the last time we played. Oh, yes. When we left the stage that night, I knew it was going to be the last gig, yeah. Yeah. I, there were, you know, a lot of, not to quote Ophelia songs, there were a lot of different forces at work. Um, you know, it had been a few years. Um, Glenn and Bill, um, they they actually did a Ophelia show with that Peanut Gallery series I was mentioning, which... Yeah. Uh, with an incredibly packed house because they hadn't played in a couple of years at that point. But I think they were, you know, they were both writing still, and I think we're we're getting the bug maybe to put the band back together, as they say. Um, and but but they, between the you know the Tripes and Young Wu and the Willies and a lot of the Willies music. Um, they they incorporated into the soundtrack they did for Su- Susan Seidelman's film Smithereens. So they were still involved in musically in all kinds of different avenues. Um, but I think they had the hankering to, you know, play as the Feelies again. So you know they're moving on. I mean, the downside to us was that they <clears throat> recruited our rhythm section, Brenda and Stan, to play in the Feelies. So uh, we were back to kind of our origin state, um, except El Bruce wasn't singing with us anymore at that point. So uh, it left uh, Tony and Mark and I to our devices. And then So we regrouped. Okay. We regrouped, started Speed the Plow. We put out 10 albums over a long span of time, and... Uh, I don't think anybody's got any regrets about how any of it happened. No, we all we all remained friends, and in fact, Brenda was just she spent the night here the last two nights because when she comes out to play with the Feelies, she hangs out with us in their in their office. Well, that's like 
I, that just goes back to the community supporting everybody. Um, but from so after that last show, like that kind of vague where do we go um, feeling that I imagine like was kind of like is surrounding everything. What kind of what kind of redirected to the plow, so to say? Like uh, we we had Mark and I were, were we you know we still were getting together to play and John was still writing and so we just kind of continued like we always had done you know it was it really didn't stop for us yeah but by that point there was no right way I was going to stop writing so and the writing was getting a little bit more evolved let's say uh you know so I wasn't going to put it down we were going to continue along uh, there were a lot of kind of weird disparate things going on uh, uh I was playing with with Bill quite a bit just he and I were doing some recordings which I've been going through some old cassettes lately that are quite enlightening um before he moved down to Florida but um you know and and like I said, the feelies I think was, were getting that hankering to get back together. They recruited a new rhythm section that I, I think is their best, you know, despite how much I love the first album. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, kind of people went their own ways. Our beginnings with the Plow were interesting. We, our first show, that show with David Thomas, um, we had a cassette recorder that had a record Brenda had a drum machine at the time. So we used that as backing track on a couple of songs. And then we had asked, and I think Tone, did, did Glenn sit in on a song or two? No, I don't think so. Someone else did, but we, we asked Anton fear, the, the first Feely's drummer, who you know was in our wider circle of friends at the time? If he'd be interested in playing drums on a couple of songs on this set, uh, he lived in Manhattan. We didn't. Um, we kind of set up a few dates to try to rehearse. Couldn't. Uh, made arrangements to at least have him there for our sound check, so we could at least run through something. <laughs> right. uh, and he literally showed up ten minutes before our set was supposed to start. So. I have no memory of what he played, but he got through it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's always a, the distance and the rehearsals. Uh, no matter if I feel like working with musician musicians, like especially when you get a bigger group or just a group that's distant, no matter how much you be proactive, someone someone's that guy. <laughs> yeah, or I girl. mean logistics are a big fact. It's funny that. Um, Stan does some uh, Twitter posting whenever the Feelies are out doing a weekend of shows, usually quoting Dave, uh, who informed them that he had auditioned for Richard Hell and the Voidoids back in, I don't know, 77 wow. or 78. Yeah. Uh, and he, Dave said he felt it went pretty well, and so they asked him for his number, and they saw a New Jersey area code. <laughs> like they'd never called him back. Yeah, yeah, I, it's you know. Side thought. I mean, but like so, um, so far on from that, like 
and what a cool first gig too with like was it David Thomas and the like three other guys I can't remember what was the group he had where it says like his name it's like David Thomas and two guys or um uh yeah I think this was just yeah I I remember vaguely something where I don't know. It was something like there was some name for yeah. his accompanist, uh, but this was just David Thomas. Okay. And uh, all I knew was Perubu, and then all I heard from people when I said, "Hey, we're you know first show, we're opening for David Thomas," it was like, "Look out!" You know. <laughs> did you uh, did you ever cross paths with uh, Chris Butler? Uh, no. Okay. Um, other like than. Other than contributing a track to his Endless Glitch project. Nice. Devil's, yeah. Is the Devil's Glitch? Last year. What? It's the Devil's Glitch. No. What's it called? Def, no. The Endless Glitch? The Devil's Glitch. You sure? Anyway. Well, yeah, I think so. It was, you know, about a, God, a 20 or 30 minute long recitation by me and this really great singer, Rebecca Turner. Um, of uh, Eno's uh, oblique strategies. Oh, cool! Uh, set to some pretty neat ambient music that uh, Rebecca's husband Scott came up with. So, yeah, I—that's my connection to, Rich, uh, to Chris Butler. And I have an indirect connection to Chris Butler because I used his thought, his thoughts from his song "The Devil's Glitch." Um, and I made my music technology kids make their own sound loops and record their own. Yeah, that's right. Something. Uh, each kid had 30 seconds, and we have a seven, eight-minute song uh, start to finish, and I'm working on getting it to Chris, and all the kids, like, eventually came around, and they enjoyed doing it. But, um, that's you awesome. Know, high school yeah. Hard right now. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that tone. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I never... I don't think I ever met Chris Butler. We've probably been in the same room at the same time many times, but I don't think I really ever met him. So I'm embarrassed to say that, but it's true. Well, he's 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 based in Cleveland, is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's a he's a Kent uh, Akron guy now, but like, uh, oh, that's I, right. Yes, yes, yes. I see him all the time in Cleveland. But uh, that's crazy small world. That's cool. That's cool that you got to uh, do the project with your students too. Um, and I totally get the, the struggle of trying to convince them it's cool. Like, and then eventually they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. This is kind of neat. Whatever. <laughs> like, but yeah, um, like, uh, go back to sleep or look at my phone. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but you have uh, the same stories? Okay. <laughs> Uh, but we can, I feel like we can go on that for hours. But um, so looking back, because like music for our neighbors is like a collection, right? That's coming out. Um, so looking back and like, did you guys go through and re-listen to everything? Like, what was like kind of that process like? Well, this the 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 new release on Pravda is sort of a reissue uh, of um the compilation music for neighbors that acute records put out about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, uh, on vinyl and sold out like really super quick. And, um, there's copies going for ridiculous amounts now. And it's funny. Um, so this is 10 years later. Um, Glenn has a relationship with Pravda. I think they put out the wake albums, and maybe an album by the Glenn Mercer Band as well. So he had a history with Pravda. 
Um, we weren't thinking about doing this at all, um, but this is bizarre. Um, Ken, uh, Ken, uh, his daughter, Ken who owns Pravda, his daughter, who I'm thinking is maybe late 20s or whatever, uh, had become a huge fan of the tripes. Uh, listening on Spotify, uh, well, platforms, um, I, you know, unbeknownst to us, um, the folks at Acute Records had put out, had created a Spotify list for us. I mean, this is before I even thought about listening to anything on Spotify. Anyhow, I guess maybe it expired or the band never took over after 10 years, never took over the domain. And so it went missing. And she, Lily, uh, the younger person, and her friends were like all disappointed that the tripes weren't available anymore and got this ball rolling. That's awesome. Cause like, I told the, the... her dad, like, you know, this music should be out there. I mean, the notion that a person kind of half my age would have been into that kind of music and pretty religiously is like amazing to me. Um, but that was sort of the genesis of this, uh, the current project. And uh, in, in, through various interesting means, a whole bunch of other uh, tripes material surfaced during those 10 years, uh, including uh, a decent recording of this showcase show that we did at the bottom line in 84. So, um, and then some other things that emerged on cassettes that we digitized. So, uh, or some early home recordings that are really unbridled that we did in Bill's basement. So there's just this whole, you know, wealth of additional new stuff that nobody had ever heard that, you know, we've now attached to this release. Yeah, and a couple of years ago, we brought we we had kind of like a tripe mini tripe reunion, in that we put two tripe songs on the Plow Project, um, and we we re-recorded two tripe songs to put on that project, and that was kind of fun too. We brought Elders back. We did the song called Dark Confidence, and then we did another song with Brenda, and it was that was kind of like oh, you know tipping your toe in the water kind of thing um, to get, you know, the original people back together again. Thank God we're all still around, you know? Yeah. 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 That's amazing. That's awesome. And, and we're, we're right in the midst, in fact, right smack dab in the middle of recording a couple of other tracks from way back in the early part of the band that never really saw a light of day, so... Um, I guess we'll kind of use those uh, in conjunction with the release of the LP later in the year. And these are forgotten songs, songs we totally don't even really remember how they go. Um, so we had to really listen carefully and uh, try to come up with the come up with the structure, the chords, and everything. In fact, one of the songs. Uh, eventually turned into a Speed the Plow song, except the original version has different lyrics, has different form, has different chords, it has different thing except for maybe just like a hint of a hint of a riff. So it's really funny. I'm like, we're doing that song, but I have it in uh, D flat. No, no, it's in it's in E minor now. I'm like, oh, okay. So let's change it. It's really funny. 
like going through that where you're like, we were amazing. Like this was, I was hip as can be. Look at, listen to that change. I don't even know what I did. Or was it kind of like, where was I? (laughs) So many times that John and I will be listening to each, to these tracks and like, look at us, look at each other with like, whoa, what was that? Like, holy shit. We can't believe that. You know, that was us at the time. So, you know, it's really fun. Really fun. <laughs> That's awesome. And one, I think to kind of reflect upon like just any amount of work you've done, like say like just recording demos or, or scratch songs for yourself as a practice, um, which is something I've been trying to do a lot, like record a bit every day. And like uh, after like a, a month or two, I'll listen back and be like, oh, you know, what? there were some nuggets there. Let me pull those like that, that practice of like listening back, which is like you cringe so much. But at the same time, there's like, well, that was pretty cool. And uh, coming to that realization, I think it's almost it's so priceless, and, and it makes you appreciate our, just the the creation process in such a different way. And like that's amazing. So it's exciting that there's going to be new stuff. Do you guys have any shows lined up? No, that's the one question. I yeah. mean, uh, is it your podcast is Zig at the gig? Yep. Yeah, it probably won't be at any of our gigs. So. <laughs> I'm thinking. Well, you know, uh, as with everybody, we kind of went into the state of hibernation the last two years. Um, Speed Plow is going to take a, a bit of a hiatus, I guess, at the end of 1919 going into 2020. And uh, so we recorded, started recording some new song ideas I had with, uh, with Mark and Tony, and um, so we had like three or four new things in the can when the pandemic hit. And I mean, it it hit pretty hard here in our community, in our musical community. We lost a friend and a huge, huge fan of the band. Oh, really? Early on. And incredibly early on. I think maybe April 2020. Uh, a big strapping guy. And... Uh, it brought the whole pandemic, you know, kind of crashing down around us. Um, and then after a little while, we started thinking, well, we've got these song ideas recorded. And, I, you know, we can't do anything with anybody in person these days. So I started sending the tracks around to a bunch of people we knew. Um, and kind of the objective was not to use the usual suspects, uh, you know, Brenda contributed to a couple of songs. Uh, Mark's on probably half an album that that emerged. But we reached out to a friend in Beirut who was this phenomenal female singer. I mean, amazing, who we've done a couple of shows with in New York. And she contributed vocals to two songs that were just astonishing. Um, Matt Puichi from Rain Parade, well, going back to Tripe's days, uh, he, he still, 35 years later or whatever, talks about the Rain Parade Tripe show at Maxwell as being like one of the pinnacles of his life. And I'm like, wow, really? I, you know? <laughs> so, and we've stayed in touch and gotten together a few times over the years. So we asked him to contribute some guitars to his song. Uh, that Tara Key from Antietam also played some guitar tracks on. So we reached out far and wide and wound up with an album that came out last year. Um, and 
I, I really, during the kind of making of all that, wasn't really thinking about live performing again for a while. Um, kind of wanted to take a break. Um, you know, we were doing Speed the Plow shows on a fairly regular basis. Uh, Tony and I became involved in this more kind of folk harmony-oriented band called the Campfire Flies. We were playing quite a bit and released an album, I guess, two years ago now. And I was sideman for, for the Glenn Mercer band whenever, you know, rare occasions he would emerge for a gig. And I played keyboards with Young Wu, who were also, you know, playing occasional gigs. So uh, I kind of had my fill, <laughs> um, you know, schlepping around. Um, Pianos are heavy. You know, <laughs> I get it. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. The you know the folk band I was playing with. I'm bringing a keyboard, an amp, an accordion. I mean, I'm bringing more equipment than I brought to any of the rock bands I played in. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I mean, it became a convenient excuse, I guess, in a way to to not consider playing again. And I can't imagine it's going to go on forever, but. I'll, I'm sure I'll feel differently sometime soon, and uh, maybe I could see the tribes trying to mount something around the release of the LP later this year. Very so, uh, never yeah. say never. Never say never. I like it. Um, and I'll, yeah, I, I get it. I don't. Know. There's like a, if anything, like it. Maybe it makes you realize which shows we need to do. You know, what I mean, like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, which is... Street playing for 10, 15 people, it's really not, you know, and getting out of there while the techno group is coming in and setting up their stuff, you just really don't feel very appreciated, and it's like, what for, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it does get back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the club scene in New York, and, I mean, it has really got a complete 360. Um, you know, the first shows that the Trice played in New York... I mean, we did a set at the Dance at Terry. I don't think we started until 2 a.m., and we were like the headlining band. Uh, yeah. Now it's gone to this complete opposite of, you know, bands going on at, you know, maybe have a three-band bill, seven, eight, nine, ten o'clock, the house turns over, the DJ comes in, and you got to hightail it out of there. I mean... I've been in situations where, you know, we've had a good crowd and there were a lot of people around to talk to after the show, but you can't even do that. <laughs> you know, they're hurting people out and hurting new people in. Right. It's it's so hard, especially if there's any, like, a band playing, how's it going? Oh, I'm good. You know, it's the worst, the time to try to conversate. <laughs> yes, yeah. people do not shut the F up. That's true. <laughs> I mean, that's well, kind of always been the case, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's a little bit more now. Um, but, um, but hey, you, the, sorry. I'm hoping that the future of the clubs in our area will, like, realize, you know, how important the live music scene is. And maybe there will be some, you know, renaissance of the way that things used to be. Because, you know, a lot of people are really desperate to play. Right. And I think you know, there's going to be, there's going to need to be some outlet for them. That's when you get the Renaissance trio back together, and we <laughs> take take to that the stage. That would be great. I'd love to see that. I would love to see that too. I have the, the guitar players in California and the tuba players in in uh, Florida. 
That would that's when you said that that stuck out. I'm like, I bet that'd be really cool. Just like Renaissance music's very particular sound. Yeah, we played uh, we played up uh, in New York public schools at New York uh, young audiences, and we also did like the brunch crowd for restaurants in the city, and that's we did the brunch brunch on Sundays at Maxwell's. Very cool. <laughs> Well, hey guys, it's been awesome talking with you. This is I, I really dove I really enjoyed doving diving. I can talk now. Diving into your music and your career. Um and I know it was kind of a last minute thing with Howard, like it was pretty quick. Um well, the turnover was scheduling this, so I really appreciate it. And uh I look forward to hearing hearing more from you guys and uh I'm trying to make my way out to New Jersey sometime soon, so maybe maybe in passing yeah. I'll catch you guys. And if you're ever in Cleveland, please drop me a line. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. Uh, if you come out to New York, we can at least play a rehearsal gig for you in my yeah. basement. <laughs> nice basement <laughs> gigs, um, which we've done. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs>